I would invite you to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 11. And if you use an electronic device, I'd invite you to turn it on and find Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. Please follow along as I read. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Will you bow with me forward to prayer before we look at this passage together? Gracious Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this opportunity to worship. To uh, worship through song. To uh, worship through fellowship and connecting with our friends of our church family. To worship through hearing what you are doing in our church family and to worship through the study of your word. My prayer this morning is that uh, we will be encouraged and challenged, but ultimately that you'll be glorified in our time of worship in its totality this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The family comedy... Everybody Loves Raymond, aired on television from 1996 until 2005. You can still watch it on reruns on cable channels. The program focused on the Barone family from New Jersey. Ray and his wife, Deborah, their daughter, Allie, their twin sons, Michael and Jeffrey, and oh, there's Ray's brother, Robert, and his very intrusive parents, Pat and Marie. On one occasion, Deborah is speaking to Raymond and accusing him of being immature and shirking his responsibility as a parent. She wants him to be more involved. Specifically, Allie has had a question about babies, and she wants him to take care of that, and he assures her that he can do that. So armed with several books that are marked at appropriate passages, he goes to Allie's room and sits on the bed and begins to speak to her about babies. Allie, when a man and a woman love each other, they get married. And then after a period of time, they decide to have a baby. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. Allie said, but Dad, my question is, why are there babies? Uh, Well, we'll answer that in a minute. Now, let me tell you about what happens to produce a baby. And Allie said, she's probably 9 or 10. I I know what happens. (laughs) What I want to know is, why are there babies? Well, because, what? 
And Allie goes on in her childlike faith and said, if we all go to heaven when we die, why does God put us here in the first place? Why are there babies? And this totally blindsides Raymond. If you've watched that show, he, he gets that blank look on his face, and he's trying to figure out how he's going to respond to this. And so he hem-haws and says, Well, Allie, <laughs> the reason there are babies is because heaven is overcrowded. It's to alleviate the heavenly congestion. It's a great question. It's a horrible answer. We, we laugh at that, but why are babies born? Why did God create all that we see and us included? This morning I'd like to answer that using the passage that we just looked at in Romans chapter 11. And having answered that question, then see what difference it makes for us as we live out the 21st century. Now, we've dropped down into the middle of the book of Romans, so we need to set this passage in its context. Paul is writing this lengthy letter to the church at Rome, and as he finishes the introduction, he said, I'm eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. That's desire, that's his goal, and then the words that follow are very familiar. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it's the power of God for salvation to... Everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. He's going to write to them about the awesome nature of the gospel, but Paul realizes that if they're going to understand the grandeur of the gospel, they've got to see and understand the extent and pervasive nature of sin. So in verses uh, 1 through uh, chapter 1, verse 18 to 320, Paul talks about the condemnation of all, that we are all sinners. And then from that grim theme, he moves on in chapter 3, verse 21, and until 5, verse 21, to talk about the great hope of salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. And then in verses 6 through 8, Paul presents principles of Christian living. We call it sanctification. And then in chapters 9 through 11, Paul bears his heart about his desire to see his fellow Jews saved come to faith in Jesus Christ. And he writes about the sovereignty and righteousness of God in dealing with Israel and with the Gentiles. And finally, in chapters 12 through 16, Paul uh, presents the outworking of this doctrine, our our ministry, our service to one another and to the church. A a simple outline of Romans, a, a simple alliterative outline would be sin, chapters 1 through 3, salvation, chapters 3 through 5, sanctification, chapters 6 through 8, sovereignty, chapters 9 through 11, and then service, chapters 12 through 16. That's worth the price of your admission today. Sin, salvation, sanctification, sovereignty, and service. But our passage comes at the end of this long doctrinal statement, sin, salvation, sanctification, sovereignty, Paul, as he thinks about the salvation that God has provided, his sovereign dealings with men and women, Jews and Gentiles, he can scarcely contain himself. He he breaks into praise and adoration of God. Verses 33 through 36. This is not unusual for Paul. He did the same thing in the book of Ephesians. The first three chapters were about doctrine. At the end of chapter 3, then he broke into praise. And then he talked about how that doctrine 
became duty, how it worked itself out in life. One writer put it this way, Our study of God and His ways among us should turn our hearts to music. The term theology produces in the mind of the man on the street visions of damp libraries and musty tomes and somber monasteries. Instead, theology should suggest light and dancing. Theology should suggest light and dancing. Well, these words are words of uh, bracing hope. They are breathtaking. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. I believe that as Paul writes these words, he, he, he's picking just the right words of praise. It's almost as if he's stringing uh, pearl words onto a, a fantastic bracelet or necklace. He's selecting each one very carefully. That little particle O oh, is a, almost like an exclamation mark, exclaiming his awe the majesty and magnificence of God. Oh, what a God we have. What a plan he's revealing. The word depth, I don't know what's in Paul's mind, but one of the things that pervades Scripture is the awesome and mysterious nature of the sea. And that may be in Paul's mind. He's thinking of himself on a, on a ship or a boat in the middle of the Mediterranean, looking down into the depths of the sea, understanding he cannot plumb those depths. He can't understand those depths. That's the way it is with his understanding of God. I believe that Paul was, uh, had great knowledge of God, but he is humbled by what the Spirit has allowed him to write. It all, com- all comes to Paul as he considers the depth, the inexhaustible magnitude of God and his plan. Oh, the depth of God's wisdom. Oh, the depth of God's justice. Oh, the depth of God's grace and his mercy. Oh, the depth of the riches, probably referred to the kindness of God in this plan of salvation that has worked itself out. Scripture tells us much about the riches of God's grace, the riches of God's mercy, the unspeakable nature of those riches. Oh, the depth of the riches of the knowledge and the wisdom of God. Again, those two words pervade Scripture, especially in the book of Proverbs, the wisdom literature. Knowledge is the gathering of information. Wisdom is the applying of that uh, information or facts to daily life. God knows everything, Paul is telling us, and he applies it perfectly. He has an infinite capacity to know, an infinite capacity to apply things correctly. The old commentator Albert Bengel put it this way, Wisdom directs all things to the best end. Knowledge knows what that end is. And as Paul thinks about the plan of God in salvation and the outworking of his plan, he is awestruck. Now, we know that God is omniscient, so it goes beyond that. God knows all things. The words of the old Southern Gospel come to mind. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? <laughs> Sounds strange to us because things occur to us all time, all the time. But God never wakes up one morning and said, "Well, I never thought about that before. It just occurred to me." He knows all things. He is omniscient, and that's what Paul is celebrating. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. 
Then their parallel thoughts, the last part of verse 33, how unsearchable his judgments. I like the way Eugene Pearson puts it in his version. Uh, he says, have you ever come to on anything quite like this, extravagant generosity of God, this deep wisdom? It's way over our heads. We'll never figure it out. <laughs> I like that. It's way over our heads. You better believe it is. We'll never understand it totally. The word judgments has the idea of decisions, like judgments rendered in a court, a, a verdict, a sentence that's given. God's decisions, God's judgments, God's verdicts, God's sentences, they are unsearchable. He decides to do this and that, to judge this way and that way. The depths of those decisions are not easily comprehended. This certainly has to do with the plan of God that's unfolded in the opening book of Romans But there's also things that occur in our lives, things that we just totally don't understand. Sometimes they come to us as a total surprise. They they baffle us. But then that shouldn't be a surprise because God is beyond us. He knows so much more than we do. That explains why some things are just unexplainable to us. We cannot comprehend his infinite purposes and plan totally. John Wesley who said, show me a worm that fully understands a man and I'll show you a man that can comprehend God. It can't be done. And as if that wasn't enough, Paul goes on and writes, his paths are beyond tracing out. That phrase beyond tracing out translates a single word in the Greek text. It means incapable of being traced by footprints. The New American Standard translates that word unfathomable. Glad I got through that. I wasn't sure I could. Unfathomable. The only other place it's used is in Ephesians chapter 3. There it's translated unsearchable. Now, the word was used of the ancient world and, and hunters. I understand deer season started today. Somebody told that, mentioned that on the way in. Bow season. So I'm, I'm glad you guys are here. Anyway. Uh, it it describes hunters who are are tracing animals, uh, tracking them and the path that they've taken, and suddenly they lose the path. It it seems to have evaporated. If you try to follow God, if you try to follow what He's doing, you will ultimately lose the path. We can't see where God is going. His ways are untraceable. Now, let me assure you, there are a number of things that we can know about God. Uh, Here we've studied uh, the attributes of of God on several occasions. There are things that we can know and appreciate and learn from and apply to our lives. They're just things that we cannot understand. They're untraceable. That's why we're called to live a life of faith. There are times that you cannot tell where he's going or what's happening. There are things in life that happen that we just totally don't understand. I I had listed some this morning, (laughs) sickness, disease, calamity. But we have a first-hand example of this. We don't understand. Gene and Jan Williamson uh, had tragedy strike their family, if you hadn't heard. 
Jean's older sister uh, and her husband and their daughter were tragically killed in an automobile accident near Borger yesterday. The driver of the car, the the lady's husband, uh, the daughter's husband, survived. They were run off the road by a a truck driver. Why? Why why would, would that happen? Why to them? Why then? There are questions in life that we cannot understand. Only God knows why these things happen. Most of the time we can only wonder and shake our head. The next two verses, verses 34 and 35, are designed to reinforce the thought of verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His ways paths beyond tracing. These are three rhetorical questions that are taken from the Old Testament. They all begin the same way. Who has? Who has? Who has? The answer is always the same. No one. No one. No one. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Anyone? Any volunteers? (laughs) Anybody here know the mind of God perfectly? Don't misunderstand. God has revealed himself to us, and there there are things, important things that we can know about God, but even in that context, there are things that are just beyond our understanding. For example, we know that God is eternal. There was no beginning. There will be no end. He just eternally exists. For him, time just is. I I, I could know that. (laughs) I'm not sure I totally understand it. Kind of trips the circuit breaker in my mind. We can know things about God and apply them to our lives, but not totally comprehend them. Who can know the mind of the Lord? The answer is nobody. Who's ever anticipated what God's going to do? No one. No one. These thoughts, these first two questions, come to us from Isaiah chapter 40, by the way, verse 13. Second, or who has been his counselor? Who has ever suggested something to God that he never thought of? This is a rhetorical question. Have you ever tried that? I don't expect you to answer. I have. Isn't that dumb? You know, God will be doing something in my life and I I will say and think, now wait a minute, God, is this the best way to pull this thing off? Could I I offer a suggestion for an alternative plan? You know how well that works. Who has ever whispered in God's ear and told him what he needed to hear about a particular situation? Who has ever argued with God about what's going on in their lives? C.S. Lewis said, to argue with God is to argue with the very power that makes it possible to argue at all. Who does the Lord go to for advice? Nobody. Who does he check in with? Nobody. The third question comes to us from Job, chapter 41, verse 11. Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? 
passage from Job reads, Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. This divine challenge from Job comes at the end of this long period of time when Job and his friends have been trying to figure out what God's doing in the life of Job. They have questioned God's integrity and His wisdom and His goodness, and they're standing at the precipice of the question, why? God says, I am solely responsible for my acts. I am sovereign. I do not answer to anyone. No one has ever given something to me that I need to repay them for that gift. No one can ever say, God, you owe me something. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable His judgments and His paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay Him? Majestic words from the pen of Paul after he's completed this long section about God's plan, it's turned to God's praise. And he concludes with the words of verse 36. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Did you see it? That fourfold mention of Him, Him, Him points each of us to the central and exclusive focus of our lives as believers in Jesus Christ. It is God. Furthermore, the reason for this radical vision of life is expressed by the prepositions from, through, and to. From Him, these first words indicate that God is the source of all things. All things have their origin and cause in Him. There was a time when there was nothing but God. Matter and the created mind did not exist. There was no sun, there was no earth, there was no heaven. The atomic structure, the atom and the supernova and the pulsar all came from Him. There was no raw material to work with. God created it out of nothing. Ex nihilo is the Latin term. This is harmony, in harmony with John's words in his gospel. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. All things came from God. The uncreated created everything. From him and through him, or we could translate that preposition by him, indicates that God is the sustainer of all creation. The existence of the created order depends upon Him. Every moment we have is at the mercy and grace and kindness of God. Paul wrote of Jesus, He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Chapter 1, verse 17. The uncreated not only made all things, but sustains all things. Everything came from him. He simply spoke this into existence. And the heavens flashed into beings and the earth began to turn on its axis. Second is that God is the power who sustains all things. 
Every beat of my heart is a gift from God. This past year, I turned 74. Now, for some of you, you're thinking, wow, you look young for your age, and I thank you for that. (laughs) Others of you went the other way, and let's not talk about that. But the reality of it is, as I look at the folks here in the front, I'm at the end of this journey called life, and they're just beginning. But I don't care at what place you're at, every beat of our heart is a gift from God. He sustains all things. I continue to live and breathe because of His sustaining power and pleasure. To Him, the third word, indicates that God is the goal of the created order. All things were made by God. All things exist for Him. He who created everything is the end to which it was created. And then finally Paul says, to Him be the glory forever. Amen. There is the answer to Allie's question. God's glory should be the sole and constant desire of our lives. Why did God create this? Why did He create each of us? For His glory. I look at verse 36 and and I've called it a a God-centered view of life in, in which we make... God, the center of our lives, and we seek to glorify Him. For just a few moments as we finish up this morning, what I want to do is talk to you about the glory of God and what that means for each of us. The psalmist wrote, The heavens declare the glory of God. And we see that message throughout the Old and New Testament. The the intrinsic, the essential glory of God is a major theme that weaves itself throughout Scripture. The Old Testament word kavod is a word that's translated glory. It literally means to be heavy, to be weighty. It was a noun that was sometimes used of a person's weighty reputation or his honored status. Glory came to represent greatness of a person or one that commanded respect. The other Hebrew word is the word shekinah. It talks about the visible manifestation of the glory of God. Ezekiel used this word. Ezekiel chapter 43, verse 2. I saw the glory of God of Israel coming from the east. His voice was like the roar of rushing waters, and the land was radiant with His glory. In the New Testament, the word for glory is doxa. It points to the mental picture of bright light, of shining light as well. Remember the shepherds when they came to announce the birth of Jesus in Luke chapter 2, verse 9. The glory of God appeared before them, shining as brightly as the noonday sun. The Bible talks about God's glory. It it represents His greatness. It represents who it is. It's a manifestation of God. The glory of God. The glory is to God what brightness is to the sun. The glory is to God what wetness is to water. Glory is heat, uh, what heat is to fire. It is the product of His presence It encompasses all who He is. The Scripture is clear. That God created all that we 
see, all that we are for His glory. How does that happen today? How does God see? How do we see God's glory today? Well, the answer that emerges from Scripture is that we see His glory through His followers, through each of us. Regardless of our age or stage in life, if we are a follower of Jesus, we are to represent Him, to glorify Him. Many of you have been influenced by the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The first question is, what is the chief end of man? And the question provides for us a, a life-shaping effect on our lives and our uh, desire to serve Him. Because the answer to that question is the chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. As I mentioned earlier, the Greek word for doxa had to do with, with light and majesty, but it all ha- also had the flavor of to seem or to appear, and later it came to mean to hold the opinion of someone, especially the proper opinion of someone. Glory of God means to express the right opinion about God. So when the New Testament writers tell us to glorify God, it means that we are honoring Him with our lives. We are representing Him. Let me just look at two passages of Scripture that talk about this. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, please. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. First Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19. First Corinthians 6, verse 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, because that's the case, honor God with your body. The word honor in the NIV is the word doxa. If you have that New American Standard, it's glorify God in your body. The, the Old Testament, the, the place where God resided was the temple and the tabernacle. In the New Testament era, the place where God resides is in each of us as believers in Jesus Christ. When we come to faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes into our life with God's character and God's nature, and we nurture that as we live out our Christian lives. And in that process, we glorify God because we've been bought with a price we glorify Him. My friend Mike Hill has a phrase that he uses when he closes a prayer. I've been listening to this for about 20 years, so I think I got it down pat, but maybe you're familiar with it as well. In closing a prayer and speaking to God, he says, may your greater glory be our chief concern. That's right on target. That's biblical. May your greater glory be our chief concern each and every day of our lives. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, tells us we need to make it our passionate pursuit to glorify God with our body. Glorify God with your feet. Glorify God with your legs. Glorify God with your hands. Glorify God with your ears. Glorify God with your eyes. 
Glorify God with your tongue. Glorify God with your mind. Glorify God with your body. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, adds a couple of thoughts that are important for our consideration. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Notice how broadly Paul puts it. Whether, whether we are eating or drinking, hurting or helping, serving or struggling, the activities are limitless. But the purpose remains the same. Glorify God. Everything we do in life even in carrying out the most basic activities of eating and drinking. We should glorify God. Not only weather, but whatever. Again, it's as broad as you want to make it. What, whatever you are personally, male or female, young or old, whatever place you find yourself in, whatever circumstances, seek to glorify God. You need to ask and answer the question is, my life honoring Him? Is it glorifying to Him? We glorify God in a manner that's consistent with who He is because He lives within us. His holiness becomes our holiness. His love becomes our love. His truth becomes our truth. Glorifying God ought to be the consuming purpose and passion that dictates and dominates our lives. Let me just say one thing before we say another thing. <laughs> I live where you live. It's called Realville. And I must admit to you, I'll confess, I don't always think about this. When I and going about the daily things in life, I don't often think about it. But, you know, I think there are some things that we can do that will help us. I think as simple as just Making it your habit, your pattern to include God in everything that you're doing, regardless of where you are at or what you're doing, think about God and what your actions or your attitude or your speech might do in that situation. Another real simple thing. <laughs> there are two major universities that have on the tunnel leaving leading to the football field, the words, play like a champion today. That's not a bad thought. Maybe you need to put a post-it note somewhere <laughs> on your car steering wheel or in your Bible or somewhere that will just remind you, glorify God today. Glorify God in your life today. Glorifying God means expressing him to others. If the world's going to see Jesus, if they're going to know God, they're going to see Him through you, in your attitudes and in your actions. <clears throat> My wife Barbara enjoys working on crossword puzzles. And she's really good. Yeah, I don't have the patience, but she's really good at it. As I watched her working on one this week, I, I thought about our passage and our thoughts this morning. You ever thought about it, but life is like a giant crossword puzzle. 
Uh, we're trying to put the, together this puzzle we call life as we live it out. The only problem is we, we've only got a handful of puzzle pieces. We don't have them all. And, and somebody has taken the box with the picture about what the puzzle is supposed to look like and taken it away. So we're kind of left in the dark. We're trying to fit these puzzle pieces together as we live out our lives and try to figure out the big picture at the same time. And, and, and that's why we sometimes struggle with life issues. But as the years pass, we pick up more pieces. <laughs> more things fall into place. We have a new appreciation for God's wisdom, God's knowledge. Because nothing in our life is ever wasted. All of the pieces ultimately fit together for the praise of His glory. So along this jigsaw puzzle we call life, we need to have a God-centered life. And if I were to answer Allie's question this morning, and I'll answer it for her and for us, why are babies born? Why are we here? Why did God create it all? The ultimate purpose of your life is to glorify God. The ultimate purpose of your life is to glorify God. Now hear me. I know that in the church we're called to do so many things. We're called to share our faith with others. We're called to serve in a variety of capacities. We're called to be good dads and good moms and good kids and hard workers and all. The, and the list goes on and on and on. But in all of those things, every one of them, the ultimate purpose is to glorify God. We cannot add to His glory. <laughs> That's impossible. But we can give him glory that comes in the form of praise and honor and worship and living in a manner that is worthy of the calling that we have. We do that by rejecting the culture's call to a self-centered life driven by personal rights and private morals. We do that by living a God-centered life, living in a manner that's consistent with who he is, that is to say, we must put, put his character on display. As I mentioned, his holiness becomes ours. His love becomes ours. His truth becomes ours. You know, the, the, the chapter break at, uh, between chapters 11 and 12 is, is unfortunate. I understand why it's there, because we're moving from uh, this long doctrinal section to now duty from salvation, sanctification, sovereignty, now to service. But the reality is that these words in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, kind of give us the how-to. How to live out the life of glorifying God. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in the view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good pleasure, His good and pleasing and perfect will. Excuse me. Daily, present yourself to God 
and ask him to glorify himself through you. There is no specific age mentioned. It applies to all of us. Men and women, boys and girls, regardless of where we're at or what's going on in our lives, the ultimate purpose in your life is to glorify God, to make Him known, to represent Him. In life and death, glorify God. In joy and sorrow, glorify God. In good days and dark nights, glorify God. In sickness and in health, glorify God. In your marriage and in your children, glorify God. In prosperity and in your poverty, glorify God. In days of peace and days of turmoil, glorify God. In the classroom and in the boardroom, glorify God. In moments of victory, in moments of defeat, glorify God. In prayers answered and prayers unanswered, glorify God. In yesterday's tears and today's rejoicing and in tomorrow's adventures, glorify God. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the privilege that we've had to worship this morning. Thank you for the worship team that led us in song and for all who have been a part of this worship time. Our prayer is that you have been glorified in what we have done and what we have said, that you've been exalted and lifted up. Father, I pray for each of us as we leave this place that we'll be mindful that we represent you. We will honor and glorify you with our lives. Wherever place you have set us, whatever situation we find ourselves, we'll think clearly about the ramifications of living a life that pleases you. Lord, we don't want to pray for our elders. We thank you for each and every one of them and for their families and for their sacrifice and their service and their leadership. I pray for them now as they are traveling back, and I pray for a safe journey. I pray for that it's been a refreshing and a great planning time for our church family. Thank you again for this chance to worship. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.